reflecting on a quality as uh, subtle and profound as atamayata can seem a bit remote or intangible, hard to hard to get a feeling for. This is a indeed a a subtle refined way of looking at the nature of experience. But just because something is subtle, hard to grasp, doesn't mean to say that it's not useful, important. The quality of atamayata is speaking about that quality of awareness that is free of subject and object. And the mind is not creating a solid me here and a that, a world there. The freedom that comes from not creating those structures, not believing in them, not making them solid. That's essentially what this reflection, this way of seeing is is, uh, intended for to to remove the uh, apparent solidity the mind gives to words, ideas, perceptions. We say, that's beautiful, that's ugly, that person's inspiring, that person's irritating. It's my memory. I am going to. Tomorrow I will. Unconsciously the mind gives solidity to those judgments. This is useful. This is useless. This person's good. This person's bad. That solidity is something that the mind adds. Please stop writing. Listen. Thank you. The mind tries to capture its reality in words and concepts. But the point of this reflection is that there's no solid thing there. As the Buddha said, whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So when the mind says, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, right, wrong, delicious, awful, unconsciously it believes those judgments to be absolute, to be true to be the whole story. But whatever we conceive it to be, the truth, the reality, is always other than that. It's more than that. There's more dimensions than that. So this reflection on Atamayata 
And then its partners, emptiness, suchness, sunyata, tatata, is our all ways of emptying out, freeing the mind from its habitual judgments. To see that those judgments can only be partial, can only be relative, can only be one aspect of the picture. Yena yena hi manyanti tadatangoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. Alumpocha was a genius at creating skillful means to apply the teaching, apply the practice in an ongoing and a very practical way. So to actualize, to bring this quality of, of emptying things out or, or not creating fixity or solidity, Lumpocha would encourage different ways of developing that perception, that way of seeing. One of the simplest, most effective, is to mindfully challenge every judgment the mind makes. Beautiful day. Is that so? Ah, awful day. Is that so? This person's really irritating. Is that so? This person's really inspiring. Is that so? It's an extremely simple, but if it's applied, simply asking that question, raising that question. It touches the intuition, the wisdom of the heart that knows, of course, it's only delicious from one point of view, if you have a tongue that is conditioned to those flavors. If you're sick and nauseous, the same chemical landing on the tongue would make you feel ill, unappealing, unattractive. The same person that's inspiring and delightful, one moment, what they say is charming, pleasing, warms the heart, the mood changes, some time goes by, and the same words with the same tone, irritating, annoying, frustrating, ugly. To develop the anicca sanya, it takes attention. We have to pay attention, not just here in the temple, sitting still, eyes closed and body motionless, but even more importantly, the body moving around, actively engaged in seeing other people, going places, doing things, carrying out our, our jobs, thinking, decision-making, listening. To mindfully keep track of that flow of judgments. I should, I shouldn't. This is good, that's bad. I approve, I don't approve. It takes effort. It takes a real 
uh, interest, application, determination, to bring the mind to attend to the moment in this way. But the results, if that is carried out, if that effort is made, has very powerful and directly liberating effects. Keeps bringing the mind, the heart, to that quality of awakened awareness, free of, of me in here and the world out there. It loosens the false edges that get created for me and my life, my things. The world, that person. Those edges get loosened up. When the mind applies that reflection, is that so? When it judges something to be bad or good, mine or yours, is that so? There's a relinquishing of that feeling of certainty, of definition, my plan, my opinion, what I know is good and right, what I know is bad and wrong. It loosens those edges, so that's threatening to the ego, challenging to self-view, opening the, the heart to the realization that I am not in control, I am not in charge, I am not the owner. So to the habits of self-view, to the ego, that's threatening, intimidating. But to the heart itself, it's liberating, of course. Most of life is mysterious. Most of life is very clearly not under any kind of personal control, even at the most basic level. The laws of physics and chemistry, biology, the, the laws of the workings of the mind, the interrelationship of the conditioned, the unconditioned, the laws of cause and effect, none of these are personal. None of these are individual. None of these are, are me or mine. Utuniyama, the laws of chemistry, physics. Bijaniyama, the laws of biology. Kamaniyama, the laws of cause and effect. Chittaniyama, the laws of psychology, how the mind remembers and imagines, feels, registers images, creates consciousness. Processes, feeling and perception, concepts. The very fabric of reality itself, none of this is personal. None of it is under any kind of individual control. So all of that can be intimidating to the ego, to the control freak that wants to be in charge, that wants to know, that wants to be sure, that wants to have everything fixed and predictable lined up according to its favorite, its accustomed, familiar uh, ordering, Put every, putting everything into their, their usual boxes. But what is intimidating or threatening to the ego, with wisdom, that's liberating to the heart. The jitta, the heart, recognizes, of course, it's mysterious. Of course, most of life is is uh, inconceivable. 
It's always been that way. And when the heart opens to that, rather than feeling intimidated and fearful, it experiences wonderment. It's mystery. The heart meets the unknown and experiences it with wonderment rather than fear. As uh, Lumpu Man said in his Ballad of Liberation from the Five Khandas, knowing the unknown, that's the method for the heart. Knowing, as in awareness, being awake to, the unknown, that which is uh, inconceivable. Being aware of that which the mind can't conceive or conceptualize, doesn't comprehend, doesn't have an idea for or a name for. Opening the heart to the way it is, even though the way it is cannot be named or described, pinned down, can't be compressed into a concept, narrowed down to a word, a form, put into a box. Like trying to pour three-dimensional tea into a drawing of a teacup. Three-dimensional tea won't go into a two-dimensional drawing. It doesn't go. Trying to force the three-dimensional reality of the Dhamma, the way it is, into a two-dimensional concept or a word, won't go. It doesn't fit. Can't do it. Not enough dimensions. But just because something can't be conceived or explained or named doesn't mean it's not real, doesn't mean it's not valuable. The heart can open to the unknown. Be attuned to the unknown, even if it can't describe it, name it, create a concept for it. Just like in an orchestra, if you know your instrument, you know the music, you can play in tune, in rhythm, with the other, the other musicians, the other instruments of the orchestra. You don't have to be able to write equations for the vibration of a, the strings in the violins or the air inside the drums, or the, the precise formula of the metal in the trumpets and trombones, the nature of the wood in the oboes and clarinets and the particular plant that the reed came from. Not necessary. We can listen, attend, attune. We don't have to have a, an idea, an explanation, a formula for all the detail. So the Buddha's teaching then encourages us to not try and keep forcing the world into our judgments, our opinions, but to see them just as that. This is a particular point of view, particular conditioned perception. That's all. It can't be absolutely true. It can't be absolutely real. So when moment by moment there's a challenging of those judgments, is that so? This is awful. Is that so? I can't understand this. Is that so? Now I've got it. Is that so? Notice the effect of that, when that is mindfully, attentively, 
brought to each judgment that the mind makes, look at the effect. What happens in the heart when that kind of reflection is actualized? There's an immediate sense of relief, spaciousness, brightness. Oh, of course. Ha ha. There's an ease and a naturalness. And if even uh, asking the question, is that so? Seems a bit complicated or a bit too much. Lumpocha's even simpler way of reflecting was to meet every judgment with, so, I like this, so, I hate this, so, I understand it, so, I don't, I, I don't understand it, so, this person's great, so, this person's awful, so, I'm a real failure, so, I think I've really got it, so, in exactly the same way when that reflection is brought mindfully, attentively, moment by moment, look what happens in the heart. Is that same opening, blossoming, same brightening. Aha. The heart knows those judgments can only be partial, limited. The Dhamma itself is limitless, complete. The heart opens to the Dhamma. It knows its own nature as Dhamma in that moment. Notice that. Let that be fully conscious. Let that have its own effect. And trust that. Awakening to the Dhamma. The Dhamma, knowing its own nature. Let that speak for itself. <laughs>